Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all this morning. It's great to have you here, especially uh, Joel and Emily's family. Not just Joel's family, as Paul announced, but Emily's family too. We want to, we'd like to see you too. It's great. Good to see you all today. Uh, on your seat, there should be an outline. So if you find that helpful, everything's uh, on there that we're looking at today, and everything will be up on the screen as well. Now, King Charles III, still difficult to get your teeth around that, isn't it? It's kind of Prince Charles, but no, King Charles III will be crowned on Saturday the 6th of May 2023 in Westminster Abbey in London. So make sure you get that date in your diary. It's going to be a kind of key date um, next year. And at the center of that ceremony where he'll be made king, he'll be sat on a throne where he'll be then made king and the crown will be put on his head and all the kind of ceremony that will go with that. But unlike some of the other royal thrones that are scattered around the various palaces around the UK, the throne in Westminster Abbey is actually really a very old wooden seat. Here's a a picture of it. It was made to the order of Edward I back in 1300, so like 700 years ago. This is a 700-year-old seat, basically, made by Edward I, or, or to his orders anyway, and he had Uh, made it to house the Scottish Stone of Destiny, which he had stolen from a place in Scotland called Schoon about four years earlier. Now, before William I stole it from Scotland, all of the Scottish kings way back till probably at least 700 or 800 AD and and perhaps even before that were crowned sitting on this stone, okay? That was what they used to do. So William I stole it from Scotland, took it back to London, had this chair built so that when he was crowned or when every king or queen following subsequently were crowned they were basically saying not only were they the king of England but also the king or queen of Scotland even though of course the Scots didn't accept that it was a stone that was stolen from them and the throne was made from oak and it was overlaid with gold and it's decorated you can still see some of the gold leaf that still sort of survived on the chair and it was decorated with pictures of various animals and then there's a picture of Edward I with his his feet on some lion's and it, all, it wasn't always looked after that well. It seems a bit bizarre, doesn't it? Such a chair, so important, so phenomenally kind of wonderful with all the gold overlaid and, and so important, all the rest of it. But actually, a lot of its history, it was there in the abbey, but people used to get up and sit in it. Um, there's a bit of graffiti on it, apparently, which you can see today, which says, P. Abbott slept in this chair 5th to 6th July of 1800. Amazing that they would allow someone to actually sleep in this, probably the most important chair in the world, you could argue. There's another bit of graffiti which you can see on the screen, carved by someone called D. Shipton in 1749. It's unbelievable, isn't it, that somebody would be able to get away with carving their name in such a, a chair that's so important and so historical. It's fascinating uh, to see, or it's going to be fascinating to see this throne on which every monarch has been crowned since 1300. But actually, if you think about what it actually represents, or certainly has sometimes represented throughout uh, English and British history, What it actually represents or has represented is not always actually so great, if you think about it. The reason it was built was to celebrate the brutal attacks of Edward I. He was nicknamed the Hammer of the Scots, and he was given that nickname for a reason, because he hammered the Scots into the ground, killed thousands, and destroyed much of the country. He also built uh, castles all over Wales, uh, and much of the castles that you can see in Wales today were built by by William I. Sorry, by Edward Edward I. And over the centuries since, there's, whilst there's been some, some really good kings and queens of Britain, our late uh, Queen Elizabeth II being probably the most obvious example, quite a few of our monarchs have really been pretty awful people, pretty terrible people sometimes. And they've done some pretty awful things in the name of the monarchy or with the, uh, the power, the power that flows, I guess, symbolically from the throne there in Westminster. 
It's fascinating to see the throne. If you ever go to Westminster Abbey, definitely go and see it. It's a, it's a fascinating piece of history. But much of what it historically symbolizes, actually, if you think about it, is tyrannical power, which has often been badly abused uh, by the, the kings or queens over the centuries. If you think about it, the uh, human kings and all the kind of trappings of, of orbs and scepters and, and purple robes and crowns, all that kind of stuff, really actually is copied from what the Bible says about the fact that God is the king of kings. Lots of the symbols of royalty are actually copies uh, of the symbols that are found in the Bible when you read through the Bible referring to God as being the ultimate king. The whole idea of a throne comes from the fact that the Bible talks repeatedly about God being seated upon the throne, upon the throne not in London or, or anywhere else, but the throne of heaven. Psalm 47 verse 8 says this, God reigns over the nations, God is seated on his holy throne. And Psalm 103 verse 19 says that the Lord established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. But there's a massive difference between God's throne and what it symbolizes and the throne in Westminster Abbey and what it has symbolized sometimes over the centuries. Psalm 97 verse 2 tells us that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. The kings and queens of this country and probably leaders of many, many other countries all over the world throughout history have often abused their power and they've built their power, their throne, if you like, on greed and corruption and on the abuse of people. But the foundation of God's throne, according to the Bible, is righteousness and justice. Everything God does flows from the fact that he is righteous and he's just and he's holy and perfect. Couldn't be more unlike so many of the world's leaders throughout history, really. The passage that we're looking at today is all about God's throne, and it refers to God's throne as being the throne of grace. What an amazing, what a beautiful title for God's throne, the throne of grace. God's throne is a throne that's built on righteousness and justice and grace is kind of pictured as flowing just like a stream, a never-ending stream flows from a, from a kind of spring in the ground. So grace flows from God's throne in heaven. It's a throne just overflowing and bubbling up and overflowing with grace eternally. And grace simply means to treat somebody in a way that they don't deserve to be treated. That's what grace is. If I'm gracious to, to you, you might have done something really bad to me, but in grace I still treat you in a way you don't deserve to be treated. And that's what grace means. That's what God does to those who trust in Jesus. He, he treats us in an amazing way. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve his love and his grace, but he does that for us. He forgives us. He makes us clean. He makes us holy. He gives us an eternal relationship with himself, and he gives us eternal life. That's all God's grace, the stuff that God gives us that we don't deserve. What we deserve is his wrath, his punishment, his justice, his judgment, but he withholds that in his mercy, and instead in his grace, he gives us forgiveness and a relationship with himself and eternal life. But for someone to receive grace from God, there has to have been a problem between them and God in the first place, and that problem is, of course, sin. So we're going to read our passage today, which is Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, but we're actually going to read from verse 13, just pinching a little bit back from Joel's passage last week, just to give us a little bit of a context for the passage. So if you've got a Bible handy and you want to turn, you can turn and, and follow with me, or you can just listen as I read it to you. Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to read from verse 13, and we're going to read through the end of that chapter 4. But it says this, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 
Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now last week Joel explained to us how the Holy Spirit speaks to us, not exclusively but primarily through the Bible, but it can be also through other means as well, in order to reveal partly and expose what's really going on in our hearts. And if you're anything like me, when you experience the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life, kind of shining His light into the deep recesses of our hearts, sometimes that's painful. Sometimes that's a bit uncomfortable because there's often stuff in our lives, stuff in our hearts, things that we've done or said or looked at or been or whatever that we're ashamed of, we're embarrassed about, we, we know is wrong, we know we shouldn't have done those things. And, and sometimes encountering the Holy Spirit primarily through the Bible as we read it can be a bit uncomfortable, it can be painful actually. Verse 13 says this, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God this morning sees right into your heart. He sees every single dark crevice, everything that you think is hidden from anybody else. God sees everything. He knows everything. And there are times when we read the Bible, and it can actually be quite painful as the Holy Spirit shines His light into those areas where there's perhaps sin and disobedience, the things that we would really rather no one else knew about. Every single sin, no matter where it is, or, or when we commit it, or how we commit it, is witnessed by the Holy Spirit. And our sin, as we sin in front of him, because he's right there as we sin, our sin grieves him terribly. We might be on our own, we might have the light switched off, but the Holy Spirit is with us wherever we go. In fact, the Bible says that he lives within us if we put our faith and trust in him. So every time we sin, we're dragging, if you like, we're forcing the Holy Spirit to witness the sin that we're engaged in. He has to watch as we sin. It grieves him terribly. None of us like being told we're wrong. I certainly don't. And none of us like to be confronted with our sins. None of us like to be confronted with our failures. But that's what the Holy Spirit does. It's part of his role. Often as we read the Bible, that sharp double-edged sword that really penetrates right to our heart. But the Holy Spirit doesn't do that to make us feel bad or to kind of condemn us. God isn't a big headmaster with a big stick trying to beat us up and make us feel bad about life. That's not the God of the Bible. When the Holy Spirit highlights sin and disobedience in our lives, He does it for our good. He's always doing it for our good. He does, us, he, he does it to help us deal with the sin and turn away from it. Because every sin we commit is an offense to God, and it's deeply destructive also for us. Sin is always destructive. It will always mess up and screw up your life ultimately. Sin only ever ruins things. Despite what it promises, sin can promise us all sorts of stuff, but it never delivers in the long run. It might do in the short term, but it never delivers and it always is destructive. So when the Holy Spirit shines his light into our hearts and convicts us of those sins, he's doing it not to beat us up. He's doing it to help us. He's doing it for our benefit. And the way that we respond or should res respond to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit when he shines those lights into our hearts is firstly to confess whatever sin we've committed. And secondly, then to repent. Write that on your outline if you're using that this morning. The first thing is to confess the sin and then to repent of the sin. We don't need to be asked to be forgiven all over again. 
Because if we trusted in Jesus, then we are forgiven. Past, present, and future, all our sins are forgiven. We are forgiven ones if we've trusted in Jesus. But we do need to stop the sin. We do need to confess the sin to God. Confessing our sins is basically just agreeing with God that he's right and we're wrong. This is sinful. You are right, God. I was wrong. That's what confession is. We need to confess our sins to God. What we're doing or have been doing is wrong. And then we need to repent. And repentance is simply means turning away from our sin and turning instead to Jesus. Instead of continuing in our sinful life or sinful actions or activities, instead turn away from that and turn to Jesus. We stop doing the things that the Holy Spirit has reminded us about or shown us about that are wrong and sinful. And instead we should start living the way that God wants us to. And then we need to put our faith in Jesus once again as the one who has dealt with our sin when he died on the cross and who has made it possible for us to be forgiven and made holy. Because when we trust in Jesus, not only are our sins forgiven, but God gives us the holiness, the perfection, the righteousness of Jesus. We're not just forgiven, but we're actually holy ones. We're saints. So when the Holy Spirit convicts us of a sinful action or, or a sinful way of behaving, then we need to confess what we've done. We need to repent, and then we need to kind of restate our faith in Jesus. Verse 14 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. It's about trusting in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, already done for us when he died there on the cross, rose again, and ascended up into heaven to sit at God's right hand. We've got to hold firmly to that faith we professed when we first trusted in Jesus, which is that we're forgiven. We've been made holy. We've been made right with God. We might have made a mess of things. We might have sinned small or big or whatever. We might have made a mess of things. But in that moment of confession and repentance, then we hold again to that faith that we professed when we were first a Christian, that we have been made right with God, that we are forgiven once. The book of Hebrews talks about Jesus being our great high priest and of course the book of hebrews was primarily written to jews who'd become christians so they would have been really familiar with the whole idea of priests in the temple there in jerusalem going in day after day year after year with animal sacrifices and and especially the high priest who would do that once a year and in the later chapters of hebrews we're going to see i'm going to read lots more about jesus work and role as our high priest but essentially what the author of hebrews was saying was that the priests there in jerusalem their work was now redundant because Jesus had replaced them. He had fulfilled everything that they were doing. When Jesus laid down his life to deal with our sin, there was no longer any need for any of those animal sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem. And when Jesus died and rose again and ascended up into heaven, he went into God's presence, performing then the work of the high priest. The Jewish high priest would go into the temple once a year. He would go into that most holy place, the inner sacred room where the Ark of the Covenant was and so on. And he would take blood in and, and symbolically deal with the sins of the Jewish nation. He would symbolically make atonement for sin. But Jesus has now done this for real, not just symbolically. He's done this for real once and for all. He's our, he's our great high priest who hasn't, hasn't gone into the temple in Jerusalem. He's gone into the, the presence of God in heaven itself. And he's there now, right, acting, right now, acting as our great high priest. He's there representing us, representing you and me this morning. If we've trusted in Jesus, he's representing us as our high priest before God because he shed his blood, not the blood of an animal, but his own blood. He gave his own life for us there when he died on the cross. And, and that's what priests do. They, they, they represent God to people and they represent people to God. And Jesus, our great high priest, is there representing us right now before the throne of God. 
Jesus is there as our great representative, our great high priest. But Jesus is so much better than any of the high priests that the Jews ever had. They were just men themselves who also sinned. They let God down and so on. Whereas Jesus was perfect and he was sinless. But despite being sinless, he understands the struggles that we have as human beings. He's not some kind of perfect individual who has no concept what it's like to be a human who's trying to represent us. He actually understands fully what it's like to be a human being. Verse 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest, speaking about Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So the one that is there before the throne of God right now this morning, representing us, understands what it's like to be human. Jesus understands what it's like to live the kind of life that you have lived. Because he was fully human, just like you and me. He was 100%. He never ceased to be God as he became a human being, but he became fully human. So you can only represent somebody if you're like them in some way, or you're similar to them. You can't represent somebody if, you don't, if, if you're not like them. And Jesus is exactly like us. Jesus is the only person who can represent God to us because he's 100% God, and he's the only person who can represent us before God because he's 100% human. And as Jesus is there before the throne of God right now representing us, he's able, the Bible says here, to sympathize with our weaknesses. He gets what it's like to be human. He was constrained because he was 100% man. Jesus, though eternal God, was able to or is able to understand all the kind of physical limitations that we have because he was constrained by all those physical limitations. He became a, a real human being. When Jesus was lying there as a baby in Bethlehem, Jesus wasn't just kind of pretending to be a human being. He was just a baby with all that goes on in the mind of a baby. Now that's uh, difficult to get our heads around. It's difficult to understand, isn't it? But God became a human being in the person of Jesus and was constrained and, 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 and restricted by all the human restrictions that we have. He got tired. He was hungry. He was terrified of what would happen to him as he went to the cross. The Bible says he, he, was, he was so, just so terrified, he was, shit, he, was drip, he was kind of sweating great drops of blood. Just think about his life for a moment. He grew up in a home where his human father wasn't his real father. His parentage was questioned. And that innuendo never quite went away. If you read in John's Gospel, the Pharisees at one point, the Jews say, well, we know who our father is. Kind of the implication being, well, you don't. You're an illegitimate child. His parentage was questioned, and his family rejected him. His brothers and sisters, his human brothers and sisters, accused him of being mad at one point. They said that he's, he's absolutely mad, and they abandoned him. You know, this morning, if your family life isn't all that you would like it to be, if your parents aren't all that you wish that they were, remember this, Jesus knows what that's like. Jesus knows what that's like. Joseph wasn't Jesus' actual father, but he had acted as a kind of surrogate father, like a stepfather to him, and had brought him up as his own. Now, we don't know when Joseph died, but it was sometime before Jesus began to preach and teach. So Jesus knew what it was like to lose a parent. Jesus would have had to watch at some point as his human father, his kind of stepfather, surrogate father died. The man who had brought him up, he would have died in front of Jesus. So Jesus knew what it was like to lose a parent. And as a young man, Jesus experienced the loss of a loved one, and he even had to face up to the reality of seeing his own cousin, John the Baptist, brutally executed. Jesus gets this news from the disciples. Your cousin has been uh, beheaded. 
Maybe today you're struggling to deal with grief because you've lost somebody that you love. Remember this, Jesus knows what that's like. Jesus understands grief. Jesus understands your pain. He was homeless. As, as Jesus himself said, the birds had their nest, the foxes had their holes, but Jesus didn't have anywhere to lay his head. He was homeless when he began his public ministry. Now, you might have very little this morning. You might be worrying about how you're going to pay all the bills, particularly maybe with the cost of living crisis and all that kind of thing. Remember this, Jesus has been there. He knows what it's like to have next to nothing to live on. Jesus understands what it's like to be poor, really poor. He watched the men he'd spent three years teaching and, and, and training and discipling. He, he watched them betray him and abandon him and deny him. He was misunderstood. People questioned his motives. Some of them accused him of being possessed by demons. And finally, he was beaten, he was whipped, he was spat upon, he was mocked, and then he was nailed naked to a wooden cross. We have a high priest who is representing us before God this morning, and he understands what it's like to be a human being. Jesus understands what it's like to be human. Jesus also experienced temptation. Now, we, we might struggle with this concept, but this verse tells us that Jesus has been tempted, not just a little bit, but in every way, every way that we have. You know, just think about for a moment, just stop for a moment and think about some of the temptations that you struggle with on a regular basis. Just take a, a minute, just a, just a few seconds. What's that first thing that pops into your head, that struggle, that temptation that you just really struggle with for a moment? According to this verse, Jesus also faced those same temptations. Whatever has just popped into your head, Jesus, in some way or other, in some form or other, experiences or sorry, experienced when he was here on earth that, that same temptation. Hebrews 2.18 says this, Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus not only faced all the same temptations that we face in one sort or another, but according to this verse, he suffered when he was tempted. So he knows what it's like to be tempted. Some of you right now are struggling uh, and, and suffering with temptations, maybe a, a kind of particular sin which really just has a hold of you. And, and you think, well, you know, it's okay for the Bible to say don't do this or, or, or don't do that. But in the real world, it's hard not to give in to temptation, isn't it? And we know that that's true. But remember this, Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. He was tempted in every way and he suffered when he was tempted. So when you face temptations, not if, but when you face temptations, whatever those temptations look like, and maybe sometimes it feels so overwhelming and it seems like it's impossible to resist any longer, run to Jesus who understands what that temptation's like. Run to Jesus who understands what that temptation's like. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the desert before he began preaching and teaching, and he must have then, if you think about it, have been pretty much on the verge of death at that point. 40 days and 40 nights fasting in the desert. He must have been so weak and probably on the verge of his body beginning to pack up. And at the end of that time, Satan came to him and tempted him and said, look, turn the stones that are all around you into bread and you can feed. And the temptation to use his divine power instead of being human and to rely on his power as God to turn those stones into food must have been overwhelming overwhelming he suffered as he was tempted as Jesus hung on the cross in utter agony and torture people around the cross shouted mockingly at him well if you're God you come down from the cross save yourself 
And the temptation to do that, to use his divine power, must have been overwhelming again. To end in an instant all the pain and the agony and the torture. Jesus understands what it's like to be human. He understands what it's like to be tempted in every way, just as we are. But crucially, Jesus was sinless. Jesus was sinless. Unlike us, he never gave in to those temptations. We read in verse 15 that Jesus has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And the fact that he never gave in to those terrible and powerful temptations and never sinned is massively important for us right now. Because that means he's able to be our great high priest and represent us. It's because he was sinless and perfect that he was able to then offer his own life as a substitute sacrifice for you and for me. And to take the punishment that you and I deserve for all our mess-ups and screw-ups and foul-ups. And that means that as he's now there by the throne of God, he's able to present himself to God, the Father, as the one who has dealt with your sins and my sins. If that is, we've trusted in him. If you haven't trusted in him this morning, he's not representing you. And you need him to represent you. You really do. Because you don't want to face him one day as your judge who will pour out his wrath upon you. This morning, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, he can become that great representative of yours who is protecting you from the wrath of God and who instead is giving you God's grace. But that's a step you need to take. Because Jesus, the Son of God, is there before the throne of God, acting as our great high priest for those who've trusted in him, representing us to God, we therefore can approach God's throne without being afraid of God's wrath against our sin. All those things that the Holy Spirit highlights, all those things that are, are a mess in our lives sometimes, that as we read the Bible, it shines a light into. All of those things, we can now come despite those without fear of God, without being afraid of God's wrath against our sin. Verse 16 says this, Let us then, as we hold on to this faith in, in who Jesus is, this faith that we profess, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. As the Holy Spirit shines his light into our lives to convict us when we sin so that we will run to God in confession, not running away from God, but running to God in confession and repentance and then receive his grace and his mercy. When the Holy Spirit reveals our sin to us, we don't need to run away from God. We don't need to fear his wrath because Jesus has already dealt with that wrath. Jesus has already dealt with our sin when he hung there on the cross and died in your place and mine. So we can approach God's throne with confidence despite our sin because it's a throne of grace. It's a throne that is just overflowing with his grace. It's bubbling up like that eternal spring of grace that just comes to us. No matter how badly we mess up, no matter how much we let God down, His grace just keeps flowing to us. Paul says, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. It just keeps coming. We can never out-sin God's grace. It's not an excuse to sin, but we can never out-sin God's grace. God's grace flows from God's throne like a mighty river. You know, when most people probably approached the throne of British kings in, uh, you know, throughout history, they were probably terrified. They didn't know how the king would treat them. Would he have them beheaded, or locked up, or, or, or how would that work out? But God's throne isn't a throne of terror for those who trusted in Jesus. Instead, it's a place of grace, and it's a place of mercy. It's a throne that is overflowing with grace. God's throne is built on the foundation of justice and righteousness, as we saw in Psalm 97. But, but God's righteousness and justice has been dealt with by Jesus when he died on the cross. Hebrews 2.17 says this, For this reason he had to be made like his brothers, in other words, like you and I, in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. 
Jesus has made atonement. His sacrifice turned God's anger against our sin into God's favor towards us. We have at one we have atonement, we have at one with God. That's what atonement means, to be at one with God. And that means that instead of God's wrath against our sin, we get the mighty river of God's grace that flows from his throne, his wonderful throne of grace. The Apostle John, who, who stood at the foot of Jesus' cross, one of the few that didn't flee and, and leave him, stood and watched Jesus die. He wrote these words in 1 John 2, probably, I think, my favorite verse in the whole Bible. He says this, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. If we've trusted in Jesus, we're not meant to sin anymore. Sin is meant to be dead. It is dead to us. We have to live as if it's dead to us. But sadly, we all know that we do sin, don't we? And sometimes we struggle massively with temptations. But when we do, Jesus is there acting as our great high priest. And he reminds God the Father, seated on his throne of grace, that he, Jesus, has already made atonement for our sins. The language John uses here isn't so much of a, of a high priest, instead of a kind of a defense lawyer, uh, perhaps in like a sort of criminal trial. Jesus is like our defense lawyer. He's, he's our advocate. He's speaking to the Father in our defense. He's representing us. He's defending us. And because Jesus is continually speaking to God the Father in our defense, acting as our great high priest, not just for an hour on a Sunday, but 24 hours a day, seven days a week for, for the rest of our lives, we can always approach God's throne of grace, knowing that his grace will just keep flowing to us, despite whatever sin we may have committed this morning or this week or, or whenever. Satan will do all he can to do exactly the opposite. He, he comes to us first as the tempter, and then he, he pounds us with temptations. He comes to us then as the deceiver, trying to deceive us into thinking, hey, it's okay. You just go ahead and sin. God won't know. God doesn't see. It's fine. Nobody else will know. It'll be good. You'll enjoy it. And then when we fall for his lies and his temptations, Satan then comes to us as the accuser. And that, by the way, is what Satan's name means. It means the accuser. And he accuses us then of being a sinner. In that split second that we sin, he comes and he accuses us day and night, telling us that we're no good, that we're dirty, that we're filthy, that we're useless, that God has had enough of us. He accuses us of being guilty and dirty and deserving of God's wrath and, and that we've gone too far this time and God won't love us anymore. And when that happens, then we need to run towards God's throne of grace, not away from it, because that is not true, because Satan is the deceiver. And he deceives us into thinking something that isn't true, that is not true. Yes, we absolutely need to confess our sins and, and we absolutely need to repent of them. But as we read earlier, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of the one to whom we must give an account. So we need to deal with our sins. But then we need to hold firmly to the faith that we profess in Jesus. We need to hold firmly to our faith in Jesus as the one who's already made atonement for our sins when he died on the cross and who's now ascended to the right hand of God, to the throne of God. And because Jesus is there representing us in the throne room of God, we can read these words and celebrate. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We deserve to be condemned, but because if we're in Christ, if we've trusted in Jesus, there is no condemnation. Satan will condemn us. He'll tell you that you're dirty. He will tell you that you are no good. He'll say that you've gone too far this time. He'll tell you that, it, you know, God's had enough of you. He'll tell you that you can't be a Christian if you've done that, whatever that might be. 
That's what he'll tell you. And you can probably identify that voice in your head going over and over again. You're no good. You're messed up. You've gone too far this time. But in those moments, we need to resist that because that is deception. That is the voice of Satan. It's not the voice of God. We need to hold on tight to these verses of truth, hold on to the faith we profess in Jesus, and remind ourselves that we are no longer condemned. That is not who we are. And in Him and through faith in Him, that's Jesus, we may approach God with freedom and with confidence. Not in shame, not in guilt because it's been dealt with, but in freedom and with confidence we can approach the throne of grace. We deserve God's judgment. We deserve God's wrath. But instead, we can approach God's throne with freedom and confidence, knowing that His throne is a throne of never-ending grace. I don't know what's going on in your life this morning. I don't know where you've been this week, what you've done, where where your mind has been, where your life has been. But the Holy Spirit does. And wherever you went, whatever you did, whatever you've been doing this week, the Holy Spirit was right there with you. And He's calling you this morning to, if you've, if you've messed up, if you've let God down, He's calling you this morning to confess those sins. He's calling you to repent of those sins. He's calling you to run into the arms of your loving Heavenly Father who is seated on His throne of grace. That's where He stands this morning waiting for you to return, just like the father in the prodigal story, waiting for you, His child, to run back into His arms as He sits there on that throne of grace where grace just runs and bubbles up and flows out eternally. what God wants you to do this morning. That's what God longs for you to do. Satan wants you to stay out there somewhere. Satan wants you to stay away. God wants you to come close, to receive his grace. Let's bow our heads right now. And if if you need to do business with God this morning, big or small, then now is the time to do it. Now is the time to connect with God and just once again hold firmly to that faith that you once professed that faith that you continue to profess, to confess, to repent, to run into the arms of your loving Heavenly Father who is seated on that throne of grace this morning. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much that you're seated on a throne that is built on the foundation of righteousness and justice. Thank you that you are a God who loves justice and righteousness. Thank you that you're a God, too, who is seated on a throne of grace, a throne that is overflowing with grace. Father, we are all too aware this morning of our failures, of our sins, perhaps very recent ones, perhaps ones that we're still engaged in, perhaps ones from the past which Satan loves to drag up that have all been dealt with. Come to you this morning, we thank you that you receive us on your throne of grace. There's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can approach you this morning with freedom and confidence. We can boldly enter into your presence knowing that you, Lord Jesus, have dealt with all of our sins. Father, we worship you this morning. Thank you for the good news of Jesus. Thank you for what he's done for us. 
Thank you for your grace and your mercy that can help us in our time of need. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you understand our weaknesses as human beings. You understand the, the pain of temptation. Thank you that you represent us this morning as one who understands. We worship you together. We thank you this morning that there is one there before the throne of God above who is interceding, who is representing us this morning. And we worship you together in Jesus' perfect, wonderful name. Amen.